You're listening to the Apple Insider Podcast. Welcome to the Apple Insider Podcast, episode 171. Can you believe we've made it this far, Mike? Well, I wasn't personally here for the first early batch, but yeah, I can believe it. You know, it's a solid organization. We're pretty happy with how this goes. And I, I want to thank all of our listeners for sticking with us and for leaving such good comments on iTunes that really help us tune it to what you're interested in listening to. And, uh, you know, I had a lot of fun the last couple of episodes talking with Mikey and Sonia, and I'm thinking that this one's going to be a little bit better, and I, I just look forward to it, and I hope your reaction is the same going to start right off and let you know that Intercom is the business messaging platform that does the manual work for you, automatically qualifying leads and scheduling demos. Their chatbot and messenger free you up to focus on the prospects most likely to convert. You can leave your pipeline to chance, or you could use Intercom. Start for free at intercom.com slash growth. That's intercom.com slash G-R-O-W-T-H. And also... You know, there are many different ways to listen to podcasts, and you're doing it right now. If you haven't tried out Stitcher, Stitcher Premium is the the perfect time to give it a chance. Stitcher Premium gets you completely ad-free episodes of hundreds of shows like Comedy Bang Bang, WTF with Mark Marone, and How Did This Get Made? When you join Stitcher Premium, you get 21,000 hours of exclusive content. New exclusive originals like Marvel's Wolverine and Issa Rae's Fruit are launching every week for Stitcher Premium members. And if you love podcasts... You're probably missing out. When you listen to ad-free episodes in Stitcher Premium, your favorite podcasters get paid. So that's another way that you can help support your favorite shows by joining Stitcher Premium today. For a free month of listening, go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code APPLE. Now, Mike, yes. there are a, a whole bunch of things that happened this past week. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what I'd like to do is talk about, really quickly, the three stories that sort of resonated with us personally. Okay. And and then we'll get to the big, big news. Sounds good. So here's one that actually, you know, we, we've, we've talked before about the Apple Watch. We've talked about the Apple Watch's impact on health and specifically its impact on saving people's lives. There have been a number of stories that we've had about people who've, who've caught heart issues with the Apple Watch. Um, last week, I read a story about a woman who saved her husband's life by placing an emergency call from the Apple Watch. You know, we, we've heard it from people who are trapped in cars who called for assistance when they couldn't get to their phones in their, their car, when they were pinned in their car. Um, a lot of different things like that. This is one where the Apple Watch was credited with saving the life after a user suffered a ruptured ulcer. And it just, it, it sort of cements it for me. Do you, do you wear the Apple Watch, Mike? I don't all the time. Like right now, I'm not wearing one. Uh, when I leave the house for, say, a shopping errand or something, well, it really depends on the situation. It hasn't... For me personally, it's proven to be one step too far down the little old lady who swallowed a fly. Um, that said, people who are iOS primary, it seems ideal for them. I, I use my iPhone similarly how people use their Apple Watch with their iPhone. So Okay, so so hold on, because I, I know the story of the little old woman who swallowed a fly. Mm-hmm. But when you use it like that, tell me how you mean, because well, you, you invoked it, so I want to make sure I understand. Sure. My Mac is my primary device. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here recording with it. I work on it. It's my it's my media tool of choice, and I'll use my phone or an iPad to extend my Mac. What I don't usually need is a watch to extend my iPhone to extend my Mac. Right. Okay. But I, I think... What's what's going on with these stories for me is that the watch has utility beyond what the phone alone can do or what the phone 
and and a Mac could do. Mm-hmm. That there's there's a different application at work here. You know, certainly you could make emergency calls from your phone. Yep. Yes. Although, as we've seen in the stories, there are cases where that's simply not possible because you can't reach the phone when it's been thrown around the car sure. interior as you're doing, you know, rolls. Um, there's there's also the, it has a medical sensor that alerts you to problems. Like in this case, the uh, the wearer of the watch was going to work. He was at work. He started feeling dizzy. He went headed to the bathroom, and shortly after. He started bleeding, and his Apple Watch warned him that his heart rate was at an alarming level and recommended that he seek medical attention. Now, uh, obviously, normally when you're bleeding, you'd probably think that was an opportune time to seek medical attention. But there are people in this world who say, you know what, it's just a little blood. I'm sure I'm fine. I'll go back to work. But having that extra push, that extra – the the nudge to say, you know, actually, actually now is a good time to go seek help (laughs) – pushes people over the edge and gets them to seek the help they need. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I do love these stories about life-saving and data and things like that. And I'm certainly not so arrogant that my I think that my use case is everybody's use case. I have many colleagues who swear by it who will just take it off to charge it, and even then they miss its presence when it's gone. So I, these stories, we've had a bunch of them recently. We had we had this one about the about the ruptured ulcer. We've had another story about a, a teenage girl who was suffering from undiagnosed kidney disease and was alerted of a high heart rate while she was uh, in church. And uh, her mother, as a nurse, said, "Well, you know, if you've got 190 beats per minute, we got to go to the hospital." And people complain about these stories, and I don't understand it. They're saying, "Well, you know, thanks to Ford." for providing the vehicle that brought you and saved your life. That's kind of not the point. These stories aren't trying to take away credit from anything else. It's just an additional point of data. It's it's an additional, like you said, it's additional prod to get people to take the right actions. How many people would we have never heard about who, who did suffer and die? You know, when I was in high school, there was a kid in high school who had a heart attack on the basketball court. Yeah, they happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have always remembered that. And, we saw one of the first types of these stories was that there was a kid in high school who was playing ball and got the alert that he was having trouble and should seek medical attention, and he lived. Yeah, football would, would the player, kid would yeah. would yeah would would the kid in high school playing ball? I've got to say, I like the idea that technology is is an assistant. It's an assist here, right? It's helping. Yeah, this is something yeah, that's got a very real impact. Yeah, absolutely. The Apple Watch, it's its just, it's a good use of technology instead of technology to make an additional problem, to make more problems than it solves. This is a good additive technology as opposed to a distractive technology. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to get an Apple Watch at some point. Well, yeah, I just have a Series 2. I'd still have my Series 0, but Apple decided to replace it, uh, given that my battery had popped off the screen on my, on my OG Apple Watch, so. Yeah. I'll take it. I had one of the very original ones, mm-hmm. and I I had it through WatchOS, you know, zero, one, two mm-hmm. kind of status. Mm-hmm. WatchOS one and two, and it wasn't doing a lot for me at that time. And uh, I figured, why why bother? It wasn't what I needed. And along the way, all of the other watches that I liked that had good notifications got discontinued. There you go. Leaving Apple as the one remaining that was really good. Let's see, Pebble, brilliant at notifications, went away. Intel bought Basis. Basis was brilliant at notifications, especially in its version two, and it went away. And they were also really good at the heart heart data and analyzing it, doing stuff with it. Gone. What's left? Apple Watch. Yeah, and a couple Samsung offerings. And Android Wear. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. I'm not seeing a lot of I'm not seeing a lot of companies really jumping in on that right now. 
The problem with Android Wear is twofold. One of them is that it hasn't received enough attention mm. from Google yeah. in terms of, of what the OS should be and what they want to try and accomplish. And the other problem is that Qualcomm has let the chips that get used in every Android Wear device wither on the vine, really. Yeah. It hasn't seen updates in, what, two years? The prime movers in terms of the, the watches that had adoption in the market weren't seeing enough adoption to keep going. Moto gave up. Acer gave up. Who, who's making a good Android Wear watch at this time? You mentioned Samsung. Well, who else? We got no one. That's really about it. Yeah. I, it, the, the whole Apple Watch, the whole strategy that Apple took from the get-go has been, well, we're going to release it and we really don't care what it does for sales and it will grow into a product on its own. And sure enough, and we're going to talk about this a little later, it is doing remarkably well for Apple now. Yeah. And I always was a little bit frustrated with that approach because in every other case, Apple has told us what the thing should be used for. And here they didn't really know. Well, there's, there, I think there's three different cases where they've done that. I think they did that with the Apple TV, they've done it with the Apple Watch, and now they're doing it with the HomePod. I think with the HomePod, they have a clearer vision of what it should be, but my sneaking suspicion is that they're they're keeping that vision sort of um, up their sleeves because it's just not ready to do those things they want it to do mm -hmm. yet. I, I, could, I could buy that. It's just, I think we're going to see more of this rather than less from Apple going forward. I think we're going to see original releases version one releases where the where the full vision for the product isn't realized for about two years and i think that's going to be the rule rather than the exception ah okay so we're at 1990s microsoft i think so uh, but better executed when i refer to 1990s microsoft the the reference is that uh it used to be you could buy anything from microsoft you'd, you know no one was going to get fired for buying microsoft yep. which was the modification of the old no one's going to get fired for buying ibm but you, everyone knew you had to wait until version three for it to be anything useful. Well, yeah, I mean, there is a HomePod in this house now, and it, it does what we need it to do. And I, I think that when it grows more into itself as a pull, when you can use the HomePod to pull more content to it as opposed to pushing to it with AirPlay, I think yeah. that's when that's going to take off. But that's that's an entirely different topic. Right. Okay. So now I want to move on. Let's keep things going mm -hmm. here. Favorite topic of mine. And, and, you know, you know this and I know this, is the, the push-pull and tug-of-war between Apple and the FBI and U.S. Department of Justice. And, you know, we've seen this going back to the uh, San Bernardino shooting, where the FBI took the shooter's phone that belonged to the county and claimed that it could not be unlocked without Apple's help. And, of course, they eventually did unlock it. But FBI is still lobbying for changes to surveillance. And Ray Ozzie wrote an editorial about how to solve all this. <sighs> and his, I, I heard to groan. Yeah. I heard the groan. His solution was, you know, you could tell it. I won't tell it. You tell it. Well, his solution was the same solution that the FBI wants. The, the, he, he wants a compartmentalized key that can be given up to law enforcement at any time. That's long story short. It's just, the thing is, is with a lot of his solutions and how to execute it, he did a whole lot of hand waving. And then this happens. And then they get the key. But well, go ahead. The, the problem is that he's he says he solved it, he and didn't. he hasn't solved any of the objections that anyone's had right. to the real problem. He's just said, "I'm solving for these two parts of the problem and ignoring the third. And and the third is the one that everyone's struggling with and why we aren't doing this. The so so what he's doing is he's saying we can trust that tech companies will have perfect security, that they will have no leaks, and that they can store a key in a vault that will not be penetrated 
now that everyone knows that they have such a thing and makes them a strong target. So, it, which is well, great it's fiction, yeah. but it's fiction. Yeah. So, I mean, Gray Key lost their lost some of their source code. It's not clear exactly how much they did. But if this company who makes money selling this product to break into phones can't keep their source code secure, I mean, I understand it was at a at, it was at a site, it was at a customer's site that the data was lost. But is doesn't that just aggravate the problem where once the key gets sent to one law enforcement agency or another, something stupid is going to happen? It's going to be on a sticky note, and a picture is going to get taken of it by the Channel Four News or whatever. Well, so the idea was not to send the secure key that unlocks everything out. To anyone else, it was to have that stored at the tech company and have the devices sent to the tech company for unlock, and somehow that would maintain chain of evidence and forensic security yeah. and all the other things. Um, this is a difficult problem, and that's it's it's basically an intractable problem, and that's why we're still talking about it. So what's happened now? The reason we're talking about it today is that there is a coalition named Reform Government Surveillance that consists of Apple and other tech companies. And collectively, they issued a statement following reports that the FBI is preparing another push to get backdoors added and defeat end-to-end and device-based encryption measures. And so the statement says, recent reports have described new proposals to engineer vulnerabilities in devices and services, but they appear to suffer from the same technical and design concerns that security researchers have identified for years. Weakening security and privacy that encryption helps provide is not the answer. And... So that's where we're at. Basically, this is a fight that is going to keep going. And, you know, it, it's, it needs to include Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Oath, LinkedIn, Dropbox, Evernote, Snap, and Twitter pushing back at the U.S. government and law enforcement who are requiring these changes. Yeah, I mean, and I've said this before, and I've said this in a couple different venues, and I've said this on the Apple Insider pages it is Apple's responsibility to make their devices as secure as possible for all users. It is law enforcement's responsibility to develop tools on their own to deal with that encryption in an investigative standpoint. It is not Apple's job to make that job any easier. It is literally not their responsibility to do that. And I keep bringing up, and I, I don't mind saying it one more time, that law enforcement has for years had to deal with the fact that they could not collect all the evidence that they wanted in the world. You know, if you go back to the first wiretaps on landline telephones and payphones, you can't simply wiretap a phone 24 hours and pick up anyone and everyone who talks on it in hopes of finding the one person you're looking for. It's, it's not allowed. There are rules around this. And if you miss out on some evidence that might have been there speculatively, that's just too bad. Yeah. You don't get to have all the evidence. You have to try and prove your case as best you can and collect what you can. And if something's out of reach, it's out of reach. It's important that we keep talking about it. And I want to also talk about a rumored acquisition. Condé Nast is a publisher, and they they have owned all kinds of things. They own Wired. And they're talking about a bid, or at least the rumor is talking about a bid, that Apple could purchase Condé Nast, and that would be used to amplify Apple News. I think that's reasonable. At at present, from a technological standpoint, they, Condé Nast owns Ars Technica, Backchannel, and Wired. From a more general appeal, they own Allure, Architectural Digest. Okay, maybe that one's not so general. But hey, hey, Architectural Digest is hot. In the airport, <laughs> if you're sitting in the lounge in the airport, reading Architectural Digest is good. Okay. 
<laughs> I'll go with that. It is. It is. It's really nice. Bon Appetit Brides, Condé Nast Traveler, Epicurious Glamour, Golf Digest, GQ, Self, Teen Vogue, The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, Vogue, and W. And you can talk all you want about how you want to read or how you not want to read these con- these magazines. If Apple does this, and I'm not convinced they do because this was kind of a throwaway remark in a report from The Guardian uh, this is, I think this is more of an aqua hire more than anything else. And so they don't have to pay the rights to use the content on Apple news or texture for that matter, which is now Apple's. Right. So, so my thought is, yes, they bought texture and that's good, but maybe it's one piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. from where they want to take news. I think so. And and the problem that they're trying to solve that they have to solve is the same problem that Facebook is facing and not solving at this moment, which is. How do you make sure that what you're presenting as news is not misleading people? And, you know, we saw this with the update to iOS 11.3 point whatever, where they changed news to go ahead and put vetted stories up at the top mm-hmm. and that they refresh the vetted stories periodically throughout the day. Yep. You know, they, they recognize that once they're doing a news product, that there is some responsibility there to try and ensure that people are not being misled. And one of the ways to do that is to simply buy reputable news organizations and use that as your your content and have it feed into there directly. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes logical sense that they would do this. Whether or not they're going to, we're not really seeing solid evidence that they're circling this, that they're looking at doing this. But on the other hand, we didn't have any inclination they were going to buy texture either. We don't need to see a whole lot of noise showing that they're circling this because this is the kind of purchase they would make on a manager's or a director's or an SVP's expense budget, right? You know, this is, I, I used to imagine years ago when Google bought Motorola. You remember that purchase? I do. Way back? So I, I kind of imagine the conversation at that time went like this. It was um, Sergey and Larry were sitting around and, you know, they're talking about it. And Larry says, you know, I need a new phone. Go buy me Motorola. And instead of getting him a Motorola phone, they went and bought the whole organization. And it didn't make a difference to them because it was simply just another purchase of small amount of money out of however many piles of money they have. And the same is true for Apple. Apple has tons and tons of money. Do they really feel it if they they purchase this or not? No. So it's a line item. It's an expense budget. I feel that with a bunch of Apple purchases that no one ever really finds out about them until we hear about a service discontinuation. And then we see a LinkedIn change. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm not even sure a deal with Condé Nast we would see and we would feel, but given that Texture was a smaller organization, we didn't even know about it until Apple itself said something about it. And I'm not sure that had Apple not specifically announced that they had done so, that it would have been really clear that they had done so. So Condé Nast, maybe, but I I can't help but feel that maybe there's other things that they're looking at first. Okay. But let me ask you, we've talked about the TV space quite a lot. Mm -hmm. and. You know, there have always been people who've said that Apple should go ahead and buy Netflix Mm -hmm. or Apple should go ahead and buy Spotify or or those kinds of things, right? And this sort of purchase is exactly that same kind of speculation. Yeah. And I, even though it came from The Guardian, I'm not. Or maybe especially because it came from The Guardian, if you know, you can question anything you want, right? right? It's. It's an interesting thing to think about, but as far as any kind of solid evidence that it's going to happen, eh, it's not there yet. Yeah. It would be fun from the perspective of the Ars Technica purchase, just because Ars Technica for years ran the John Syracuse articles Mm. detailing every single change within OS X, all the way from 
the uh, the developer previews all the way up until, gosh, he must have ended that around Mavericks or so, yeah, I'm guessing. Right. That sounds right. That's a ballpark. And for, for, for that to become an Apple property just feels like poetic to me. <laughs> Maybe. The big news. Are you ready for the big news? Uh, yes and no. We'll talk about why yes and no at the end of the segment. Okay. I'll, I'll hold off for the no until okay. but So the big news is obviously that we had the second quarter earnings call yep. with Apple. What did we learn from that, Mike? Well, we learned that Apple's making a ton of money, <laughs> but that shouldn't come as a huge surprise to anybody. I'm shocked. What else we learned is that the iPhone 10 has been the biggest selling iPhone since the week it released. It beat the 8 and the 8 Plus again and continues to beat the 8 and the 8 Plus again. We also but did learned, it slow down in the second quarter at all? Uh, can't tell. I mean, the, the iPhone sales obviously did, but as compared to the holiday quarter, everything is slower. But in comparison, the second quarter we just had beat the Christmas quarter from 2014. And and you're saying that, that the 10 in the second quarter still beat the 8 and 8 Plus and the other lower devices. Yeah, is that right? Yeah. Uh, Tim Cook said that it is the big it is the highest selling iPhone of all of the iPhones that they offer again every week in the entire quarter. Okay. So and see that's interesting to me. And it's interesting to me because you know one of the things that we talk about inevitably when we talk these earning calls is what analysts are saying after them <laughs> and what analysts are doing with the numbers after them. And and famously Neil Hughes said something terrible like Wall Street should be forgotten. You know, forget Wall Street. Forget what they have to say, because he he just simply disregards that they have anything valuable to add here in this kind of discussion. Um, that that it's mostly about manipulating things and, and keeping their own positions I'm, largely. I, I'm gonna, but yeah. That aside yeah. for a moment. That I'm, aside for a moment. I want to I want to talk about this. So I'm looking at at some people's report after the earnings calls, and their summary is is interesting. So you know. He, 2 million iPhones were shipped at an average selling price of $728, which was below the consensus at 740 and well below the first quarter's 796 average selling price. Okay. So the conclusion that this person draws from that is this is a sign that the high price of iPhone 10 is too much for many consumers to swallow, indicating that it's the diehard fan base that bought the product. I don't think that's the case, though. I mean, the, if it's the diehard fan base that bought the product, these numbers would be a whole lot lower because the diehard fan base of Apple isn't even half of the company's business. Okay. So then what accounts for the drop in ASP? Well, the drop in ASP is probably the replacement cycle. It's not a huge drop in ASP. It's, it's, it's a small drop in ASP, and the ASP is still way higher than it has been in a long time. It is still, I don't have the graph right in front of me. I'm looking at 10,000 other graphs right now because I didn't think that was the, quite the direction you were going to go. But this is, the thing is, is these analysts are still taking this quarter and they're comparing it to previous quarters in regards to iPhone sale volumes. And I'm not sure that's, that's, they're, well, you know what? I am sure. That's not even, <laughs> that's not, you can't compare them. When has Apple had three flagship phones? Well, that there's that. And also, the second quarter is always kind of a weird quarter anyway, because a large number of people buy at the intro when it's exciting. Right. Not just the dedicated fan base, but, you know, people buy for Christmas sales, right? Mm -hmm. In March, what's going on? Well, the other, in March, what's going on is the Samsung releases. Yeah, but I mean, in terms so. of, of Apple phone sales, what's going on in March that would be a big reason for people to go out and, and buy the iPhone 10. I, I think that there is, given that Apple has a regular cadence of iPhone releases... Yeah, I think in many ways that people look at the six month period and they either buy before six months or they wait. 
and we and the March quarter is the six month period from the phone releases. And right. I, I and I think that's the I think the biggest reason why Apple's profits are going to are going to drop in the next quarter is that whole holding your breath for the October releases. And Apple knows. I don't I, I don't know that they do drop. I think they kind of just stabilize at this point. Sure. But what I think actually from the earning reports that is more interesting is that if you look at Apple's average selling price per Mac, that went up a lot. And that's a, a side effect of the iMac Pro, which, you know, you can buy for up to $18,000. So it follows that it would have risen the average selling price. And if you look at Apple's other category, the that also went up. The the number, the money that they made from that category also went up. And it's from the year ago quarter, that is. And yeah. and that's a side effect of wider availability of the AirPods in the HomePod. So now we're looking at we're looking at a lot of things that were spun last quarter. We're looking at, oh my God, the HomePod is a failure. Oh my god, the iPhone 10 is a failure. And there have been a fair amount of mea culpas issued by analysts since then. But I my my thought is that when you're talking about things at Apple scale, things can be a quote unquote failure and still be very very profitable. Sure. I, I you know HomePod specifically, right? HomePod, um, we saw a decent number of of people who bought that that were early adopters or people who were simply just very interested and returned it. But we also saw people who bought it, returned it, and then rebought again mm-hmm. after they reconsidered. Um, there's there's been a lot of and and I would say that's uncertain about whether to have one or not at this point. I think in some ways it it is that sort of early failure, but at Apple scale that looks like hey it's a way <laughs> I would like that kind of failure right. If I were running a business and that was my failure, I'll take it right. Yeah. So I, I you know we we really need to wait around for HomePod to improve for it to make sense at this point. The Mac is still a tiny segment of the business compared to everything else, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's I'm pulling up the numbers right now. It is. It's still people complain that Apple isn't paying a lot of attention to the Mac, and I I don't think they're wrong. And this is the reason why. But we're still looking at four million a quarter. But that's not a small amount of machines. Well, Apple knows just like we do that if you're a developer, you still need to buy a Mac. Yeah. You you just do. If you're writing iOS, if you're writing things for iOS, you need a Mac. There's no way around it. So they know they have that many people to buy them. The uh, What else was a surprise in terms of Apple's performance here? What what other segments? Here, here's the thing is maybe it's because I've been doing this job, literally this job, and have covered every Apple earnings report for the last six years. Hmm. None of this surprised me. What would have surprised me had the doom and gloom that the analysts predicted two weeks ago, that would have surprised me if that's what had happened. Right. What would have surprised me is if the low numbers for the next quarter that the analysts were predicting, if Apple issued earnings in that range, that would have surprised me. There, there's nothing here that if you look at trends and if you and if you look at it graphically, we actually have a piece that does this graphically, and you can and you can see how Apple is doing on a quarter to quarter basis, and and you see the patterns, and they go back for years. They go back to 2012. Now, obviously, the magnitude has changed. The you know the the peak. The, the operating segment revenues and things, th- those numbers have changed, but the trends are the same. The trends for what happens in every quarter have been the same for for at least six years. So people who are expecting Tim Cook to come out and say these, these and give HomePod numbers and, and give specific yeah, numbers. Yeah, that was never going to happen. That never happens. And that it's was not never going to happen. happen. Apple stopped breaking out individual products about a decade ago. And, it, it's, and it's never going to go back to it. So... 
moving on to the next part of my tirade about this is I understand where this is news and I understand where CNBC and that's where they make their dollar off this kind of thing. But Neil is right. Who cares about Wall Street? I, I hate doing these earnings reports. <laughs> they, they, have, they have no value to the user. They have no value to most investors. And poor Neil's not even here to hear you say that he was right. I'm, I, well, Neil and I have actually had this conversation before <laughs> on a couple different occasions. <sighs> I mean, does anyone yeah. think that Apple is doomed? Well, so th- this is the thing, right? No one in terms of no, – no one thinks Apple's going away tomorrow, right? No one thinks that, that Apple is in trouble. No one is lobbying for Tim Cook's head. No one oh, is. Well, they are though. Well, I take that back. But I mean, no, none of the none of there's there's no stockholder movement and board movement on ousting Tim Cook. Okay. Right. The the only people who think that Apple are are in trouble and are calling for Tim Cook's head are the people who have a long perspective on Apple, who feel like the way that Apple governs itself and is handling product releases and is handling product development is not in keeping with their legacy for developing products and not living up to their legacy for developing products. Well, that's all fine and great. But the problem is, is Apple now is a different company than it was 10 years ago and 10 years ago and 10 years ago. And anyone, including myself, who thinks that Apple has, has got this amazing product line that is universally consistent and fantastic the whole time. You, you can't say that now. You can't say that when Jobs was in charge. You can't say that when Scully was in charge or anybody else. Here's, here's the problem, and here's what those people are really talking about, is that once Jobs died, there was no one left to take the role of benevolent dictator yeah. Yeah. to say no to things. And so it became a committee. I think that's and nonsense. I, I think I hear you. I think that Apple continuously says no to things, and I, I think. Do that, you do ahead. you dispute that there's no one person cutting through things and saying no individually like there was, or is it all by committee now? But, I think it was by committee before. I, I I think that Jobs the the reputation that Jobs had for saying no to a lot of things. I think that's creditable to Apple as a whole, not just Jobs. Apple doesn't have fifteen thousand iMacs. They've got like eight SKUs. Now, for for an example for the reader, go over to the Dell site right now and go take a look at any of their all-in-ones and tell me how many SKUs there are. The last time I checked, there were 22 SKUs. Why? I think I think that Cook and company have said no to things from Apple the same way that they have always said no to things for Apple. The difference is, is the public face. We have a much more amenable Jobs, much more amenable Jobs, ha, we have a much more amenable Tim Cook now versus the sometimes acerbic Steve Jobs. And that's just a matter of personalities. Anyone saying that Apple's being driven into the ground or Apple's forgetting its users is kind of ignoring history at this point. Apple has always cut off users. Apple has always said to people, well, okay, I understand what you want, but you're not going to get it. They've always done that. So, and, and, you know, going back to the original point, that's one of the reasons why none of this matters. When Apple Insider first started and Apple was looking at these really small revenue numbers, then we actually had a reason to look at these numbers with bated breath and wonder if we're going to have six more months of Apple. Mm-hmm. So shift gears a little bit. Mm-hmm. You, you published a story that was very successful in terms of coverage and, and also where it went and how distributed mm-hmm. it got about keyboard failure rates. Right. So, uh, here's the thing. I, I'm, I'm not. I'm get, I've been getting a lot of questions about this, and what I threw out was the data. I threw out the data that we have. That is realistically the only datable that's data that's gleanable. What we know for sure is that the 2016 MacBook Pro keyboard fails more 
than the previous model keyboard. That's what we know as an absolute. It fails more often. But we, what we don't know is when this is actually a problem. We, what we don't know is when Apple is going to consider this to be like the iMac GPU REA or the the screen delamination Or the MacBook issue. Pro GPUs, with which there were several, or the, you know, but... but yeah, those numbers were way higher, though. The, the GPU failures were, as best as I can tell from the numbers I have, and I don't have a huge amount of data from back in then, it looks like about one in six machines in total were experiencing a GPU problem. That obviously needs some kind of REA. That obviously needs some kind of replacement program, and it did, and it continues to have one, and we're on the tail end of it now. We're not looking at one in six on these keyboards. What we're looking at is a doubling in service reports from from one machine or another. I, we don't have the universal numbers. It's enough to say that it's a problem. It's not enough to say that it's a massive problem that's affecting a good portion of the MacBook Pro owners. I think it's a problem. And I think Apple ought to, ought to get ahead of it. And I think it's going to be more of a problem going forward. I think as these keyboards age, I think those numbers are going to go up and up and up. Because all we have, what we have now is we've got like 16 months of data. Right now it's linear. Ask me again in another six months. I'm going to hold you to that. Please, yeah, please do. Because I'm, I'm keeping an eye on it. Right now it's, it's a linear number of failures per month, starting from day one. So it was proposed in the forums that it might be user habits. It might be. It, the, the MacBook Pro is not like an Apple II that your mom and dad put a dust cover on when you were done with it. It is, it is a bang around machine. It, it's hauled around to the coffee shops. It's moved from floor to floor. It's put in your bag without thinking about it much because you've always had one as it always has been and always shall be. Hmm. So there's also clearly a difference in reliability between the 2006 and the 2017 machine, or the 2016, 2017 machines. You're saying that there was a keyboard revision there was, there, that was silently yeah, put out. There's, there's some kind of revision between the uppercase from the 2016 and 2017. So much, in fact, that if you're bringing your 2016 in for keyboard service, you're getting an entirely new uppercase that came from a 2017 service stock. So the keyboards are physically different between the 2016 and 2017. I can't tell them apart, you know, but I, I haven't looked at it under a microscope or anything like that yet. You, you haven't disassembled the key switch. I haven't disassembled the key switch, right. I think that, you know, look, these numbers aside, because this is where this all started. L these, these stock numbers do nothing for the user. They prove nothing for the user. They don't tell us as an Apple using group that Apple has the bandwidth to do everything because I don't think they do. And I don't think they ever have. I don't think anybody ever has. I, I think that they put out a, they put out a limited amount of SKUs to accommodate as many people as they possibly can. And if the top 5% and the bottom 5% don't get taken care of, then that's acceptable losses to them. Whether or not you agree with that standpoint is up to you. I don't personally like it, but it's, th it's reality. It's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And looking at the numbers, Apple's not making a mistake financially by doing that. People have been threatening for five years that if the pros aren't listened to, then Apple is going to die. Well, I don't see it. There, there's no downward trend in any of these numbers. So, yeah, the, this I, it's interesting to me just because at the same time as this earnings call was going on, and obviously analysts were a little bit disappointed and and that their stories didn't live out to be true, and they're still trying to wait to frame it. And there's always this sort of push pull where where analysts write doom and gloom stories about Apple, and Apple continues to exist and and even do well, as you say. So at the same time, Tesla held their earnings call. <laughs> Yeah, that was a little bloodier. Well, so the press is calling it supremely weird, and they're writing terrible stories about it. But at the same time, you have to think that that was the kind of earnings call that every CEO would love to be able to do, right? Mm -hmm. 
because you, you just get to go and do what your impulse says and cut off questions that you don't like and dismiss questions from an analyst as boring. And, and he literally did that as a CEO. When do you tell someone, no, I'm sorry, your question's boring? Yeah. And it's, it's, yeah. it's never happened, right? You know, the, the best you get from anyone else is something like, you know, someone says, can we have a TV with Apple TV built into it? Is Apple going to make a TV? Oh, how many years? And, and they say, well, I want to talk about that for 10 seconds. But, you know, they, but the, the best answer is, we're not going to discuss products at this time. We're not going to discuss future unannounced products at this time. Thank you. Right? A very, very soft pedal kind of way of getting away from it. So Musk instead says, you know, someone says, your question's boring. And he cuts you off. And instead says, let's go to YouTube. And instead of having the Q&A by the analysts, goes ahead and has fanboys on YouTube talk call in. Well, here's the thing. I mean, Cook could do that if he wanted to. And this was great. Musk told the analysts he has no interest in satisfying the interest of day traders. He couldn't care less. Please sell our stock and don't buy it. Yeah. Uh, and and that's fine. And the thing is, I think I think in many ways, I think Apple's stock buyback program is, is very much in the same vein. So that's interesting. See, my view of a stock buyback program is that it's Apple saying the stock is undervalued. And since it's undervalued and we know that it's worth more than this, let's just have it. Mm -hmm. We'll buy it back. And if it goes up, which we think it will, because we know what we're doing, then so much the better for us. Now, you know, analysts outside view that sort of thing as weakness. They view the stock buyback as as a sign that there's just not much more to grow. Yeah, they're they, they're viewing it as a crutch. I don't think it's a crutch at all. I don't, I don't they, think it's they, got anything to do with keeping the stock price up. They view that as yet another sign that the days of very high growth are well and truly over, is a direct quote from one of these guys. Yeah. That guy's a tool. M- maybe it is, I mean, but who cares? Who cares? What difference does it possibly make out here for the users? It's, it's well, not like the, Apple- the knock-on effect is right is, is that if the days of growth are over, then it means that the days of growth are over because people won't be buying as much or buying as well or steadily and predictably, right? Well, so what? That's so what? That's okay. I mean, Apple has All enough right. cash in the bank right now to continue producing the same rate they are, continue spending the same way that they are in everything right now, continuing building machines, continuing doing everything, and they could survive as a corporate entity in the black for six years. Right. And that's the fear of the people who are banging the drum about not having a a benevolent dictator at the helm or want to replace Tim Cook or are talking about the keyboard debacle or any number of the things that that those kinds of fans talk about is because by the time that that Apple will take notice of what they think are their legitimate true complaints, it will be too late to turn the ship around, that they've got all this money and it's allowing them to hide from the true problems. Which are what? The 5% that Apple chooses to not cater to? It's not that they're not catering to. It's not that it's that they're not fixing their problems. Yeah. You know, here, here's the thing. I want a small box, a Mac Pro box with that I can tinker with. I would like that. I would like that very, very much. But I'm also a realist and realize that I'm not going to get it. Well, you're not going to get it because tinkering is not a business need, but being able to do AR and VR development and being able to have the computer to be able to push those and satisfy those needs, which may or may not require expansion capabilities, is the need. Yeah, and I agree with that. But what this is not going to do is it's not going to move these numbers from this revenue report on Tuesday one bit. The iMac Pro did a little bit of a nudge up on Mac average selling price. But the trend, if you look at the operating segment revenue for the Mac trend, it's the same as it's been for the last five years. The peaks and the valleys are the same. 
So everyone who said that they wanted a pro machine and they wanted all these features and they wanted 12 and 16 cores. Yeah. It's not as big a market as we would like it to be. It's not a big a market as, as the Apple insider fan would like. It's, I, you know, you know what? I would love an iMac pro. I would even love the 4,009, I would love the $5,000 machine. I would love to be staring at it right now, but there's anyway, anyway. Yeah. So I said, I said that I would talk about the TV with Apple TV built in for just 10 Mm -hmm. seconds. So I'm going to go ahead and do it and we don't have to spend a lot of time on it, but I just want to talk about it. So for years and years and years, there was a fellow from Gartner research who proposed that Apple had to build a television set. And every time there was an earnings call, he'd ask for the television set. He was convinced it was going to happen any day now, any day. Yeah. And we all laughed at him. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking a couple of days ago, and I was having this conversation on Twitter with Zach Saichi, who uh, runs the Menu Bar podcast. And I, I told him, you know, I think that this is something that Apple could actually conceivably be doing, that it makes sense for them to do this now. And the reason is the old fight, the old battle used to be over what was connected to HDMI 1. You know, was it your cable box? Was it your Apple TV? What lived on the first input? It was a battle. But I think that the battleground has moved. And it's moved because we've got TVs with Roku built in and TVs with Amazon Fire TV built in. And all of the Vizios have Google Chromecast built in. And so the battle is no longer about what's connected to HDMI 1. The battle is about the battleground is what's in the TV when you take it out of the box. Because you don't have to buy an Apple TV if you're doing any of those basic streaming needs. And if you're doing those basic streaming needs and don't have an Apple TV, then you can't grow into the other things that an Apple TV can do for you. You miss out on that whole people learning about what else is there. I I agree with you with Apple Insider readers in in many ways. I agree with you with the tech literate. But I I think you may be overestimating the number of tech literate that there are. It's not about the tech literate or not tech literate. It's it's about, you know, when you buy a TV and it's got Netflix and Roku and it's got Netflix and it's got Hulu and it's got Prime built into it and says so on the box, Mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the things people shop for. Okay. And it's only the tech literate that will go ahead and buy the external box and plug into HDMI 1 to overcome that stuff, right? It's only the tech literate that say, I just want to buy a dumb screen and connect my own thing to it, right? It's the same problem as having a tower to tinker with in a way. Yeah. And mm. and so it's it's one of those, it's a space where the Apple's getting left out. Like I said, every Vizio is a Chromecast device and they do that for their sound bars and their TVs. Uh, TCL makes the Roku enabled TVs. They, they've got the Amazon Fire TVs. Pretty much every one of these things is getting some form of built-in set-top box built in, and Apple's missing out at the moment I don't think they in care. that space. I don't think they They care. probably don't, but I'm saying that, that once you have one of those, you're not motivated to go and buy the Fire TV device to connect to HDMI 1 or the Roku device or the the Apple TV to connect to HDMI 1 unless you're already tech literate about why you want an Apple TV. This is something I'm going to have to think about a little bit more, but I think that Apple's point of view with the Apple TV is you already have an iPhone, so why not get something like it for your television? And I don't think that they're interested in servicing and dealing with 50-inch screens in their stores. I don't think they're interested in shipping them, much in the same way that until they ship what I'm sure will be one SKU of Pro Monitor and not four different sizes, they're not interested in having those four different sizes in stock at the Apple Store. I, I, I think that we were talking about saying no to things. And I think that an Apple branded television is something they will continue to say no to for those very reasons. 
And that brings us to the close of a perfectly good episode. The Apple Insider Podcast is brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. You want to expand your potential? They have 65,000 courses that start at $11.99. Udemy can help you develop your skills and discover new passions. Students around the world have used Udemy to get ahead and even switch careers. Visit ude.my slash Apple Insider or download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere. Mike. Yeah. Thank you so much. Anytime. Where can people find you well, on the internet? Obviously, you can find me at Apple Insider every day, or you can find me on my own slightly more salty podcast on Monday mornings at spacejavelin.com. Not for listening with children in the car. I wouldn't. I mean, we're technically clean, but nah, let's not. Yeah, if, I'm, I'm thinking 12 or over is probably fine. They've heard worse at school. And I want to thank all of our listeners. I really appreciate joining us. Sure I, I hope that you'll tweet at us. Uh, I'm at V Marks and Mike is uh, at Mike Worthley. Yeah, he'll put the link in the in the in the in the, in the show notes. <laughs> show yeah, notes. Absolutely. Don't, don't sound it out. No you one's going to spell Worthley for you right <laughs> now. I'm sorry. And uh, I, I hope that you'll contact us. Go ahead and send us email at news at appleinsider.com and tell us how we're doing. Tell us what you'd like to hear from us for. And thank you so much for joining us. 